Hello and welcome to BTA Charity Voices Podcast with me, Anne Hughes. In this Series 3 of the podcast, BTA is continuing its commitment to the charity sector by building on its existing bank of knowledge. Conversations in the coming months will focus on insights around innovation and collaboration from across the sector. Fortnightly, we will bring together charity colleagues to chat about how we're showing up in our organisations today and how we're innovating and collaborating to meet our ambitions. As always, we'll endeavour to shine a light on topics that are relevant to us all. Together with our charity partners, BTA continues to strive to ensure our sector has the tools and skills necessary to thrive. Hello and welcome back to BTA Charity Voices Podcast with me, Anne Hughes. And this week I'm delighted to be in conversation with Rami Okasha of Chaz. Rami, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Oh, delighted to be here. Yes, and we met a few weeks ago at the CIOF dinner, so it was lovely to meet you for the first time then, even though Ian McAndrew, of course, your Director of Development and Comms, is a friend of the podcast, he's been on the podcast a couple of times, but I suppose it would just be good to kick off. I know that you were the Director of Transformation and Innovation before you then became the Chief Exec, and oh my goodness, that month, February 2020, before the world went to pop. So I suppose it would be interesting to have a chat about that move from senior leadership into chief exec and also becoming chief exec at the start of that period. So it'd be quite interesting to have your reflections on that. Oh, of course, Anne. I'd be, I'd be really happy to. I mean, in some ways, being the director of transformation for eight months before I became the chief exec was a perfect transition because it given me an opportunity to get to know the organisation. Yeah get to know what we do, how we do it, what we do well, what we might want to do better. And I couldn't have asked for a better introduction to becoming the chief exec because it is a a big step up and moving into a chief exec role for the first time brings a range of responsibilities that directors don't have. Mm -hmm. And so certainly that those early days were a learning curve. But oh my goodness, the pandemic turned that learning curve into a vertical line going up the way. And I remember early on thinking gosh I wonder you know in about kind of January time thinking we're seeing all this stuff on the news I I wonder will this affect us will this have an impact on what we do I was mindful that we're a healthcare organization and thought it might and would never have thought within the space of a couple of months that it would have begun to have the impact that it did for the length of time that it did but I mean like that's not a startlingly new observation I think we all experienced yeah, that as a yeah, as a society and as a sector, um, but the impact on charities has been profound, and I'm not sure we fully yet understand what the pandemic has done to how charities work, fundraise, deliver services. It's changed uh-huh. fundamentally. Yeah, and I think I wonder what your experience of because I feel in some of the organisations that I do work with, there's a real exhaustion about colleagues just now that I've never witnessed in my 25 plus years in the sector. I mean, we always work very hard, don't we, in this sector? We always give the give extra and everything. But we've seen that and that difficulty in recruitment, that there isn't as many people have stayed perhaps in the sector. And 
I mean, what you deal with is uh, maybe we're all better at talking about death now. I think it's not the, the you know we don't talk about that in the ways that we probably should that other cultures do better. But working in that palliative care space, especially with children, is really challenging, isn't it? So how do you keep the culture when you deal with such a terribly sad time in people's lives? How do you keep the culture? among colleagues across the organisation? Good. Keep them in their jobs. It's a great question. And we, and Chaz, we work at the hard end of hard things. So children's palliative care is tough. Mm. And those staff who are working in our hospices, in children's homes, in hospitals, alongside the NHS, they are exposed to trauma Mm. every single day and are working with trauma. And it has a profound impact on staff they need to be resilient they need to be supported and we need to really focus on well-being and one of the things we found during the pandemic was that actually that got worse because on top of all that stuff and um, people were working in really isolated ways you couldn't yeah. just go and socialize with a colleague you couldn't just chat with a friend over a coffee break you had to be socially distanced wearing you know quite complex ppe and so that had a, a real impact and we realized that we needed to do more. So we've now um, got a clinical psychologist and a a psychotherapist who work with our staff to be able to give them that release valve, that space, the professional support for, for staff who need it. Mm-hmm. Most of our staff don't, but there's probably been a you know maybe about ten staff who have needed that service over the last year, and it has helped people be well. It's helped sustain people at work, and and it's helped actually even where the cause of someone's ill health is not work, but is actually home related. But actually knowing that you have a really supportive environment to work in has allowed people to continue to be at work even if things are pretty tough at home. Yeah. And so it is something we pay real attention to i don't think we've got it all right but we have a lot of um you know clinical approaches that we try and take around and um, uh, values-based reflection around schwartz rounds proven tools that we know work in healthcare settings but of course not all our staff are healthcare professionals yeah some of our staff are fundraisers um, administrative staff charity staff and they too are exposed to that trauma so we've begun to think about how we can really make sure we're supporting all of our staff and our volunteers because it's it's a tough world working in children's palliative care but people are really drawn to it people are really motivated to it and in chance we talk about keeping the joy alive we try and find fun and joy even in really hard times and i think that is something that is applicable to every single organization no matter how difficult the work you do is if it has impact and it has meaning there is value and joy to be derived from it. Exactly, exactly. And I think it is interesting having uh, friends and colleagues who who work in any area of hospice care. I think you really start when you speak to them and you're in conversation, you see that we could do this differently. You know, it's always going to be very sad, but there is is a joyful way, I'm sure, to approach everything that we do within the sector. So I know that you have a lot of staff, Rami, I couldn't actually believe that it's 380 staff and you've got a lot of volunteers as well, which I can only imagine you rely on them heavily and that they get a lot of personal satisfaction over 700 volunteers, my goodness. See, when it comes to that cultural piece about people staying in their jobs, and I asked this question because at some point last year I did a workshop with a, a, with a variety of fundraisers, so from different organisations, different parts of the UK. And in doing a survey within that, 
around about 27% of the people in that said they were thinking about leaving their job because of the culture within the organisation. And you think, oh my goodness, and as I've said to organised chief execs before, you will pay for a bad culture because either you'll pay for it with people not doing their jobs leaving and the the downtime before they leave, the cost of recruitment, the cost of, you know, doing stuff when the new person starts and they have to settle in. So it is something that has to be paid attention to. And I think it does t- come from the top down, doesn't it? Is that something you've got time, you've got intention with that you're paying you know you're paying attention to this and thinking how can we make the culture here good so yes i mean i think it does come from the top down but culture is not set by one person it is set by everyone and i think the role that i have as the leader of the organization is making sure that others are displaying the values and behaviours that we really um, adhere to. So one of the things we've done actually over the last year is re-look again at our values. We had um, organisational values in the past which were um, care, honesty, accountability and respect. And we thought, yeah, but that's fine, but organisations should not demonstrate yeah. care, honesty, accountability and respect. So we've done a big process of work listening to the families that we support and the staff that we have and the volunteers that work with us to understand what our new values could be. And um, they're much more aligned now to the work that we um, do. So so our values are that the time is precious, that we are courageous, that we play as one team. And, and they that helps us focus what it is we're about and the way in which we behave. And what we're now doing right as we speak is taking those values and turning them into a behaviours framework. So mm. our staff are drawing up a set of behaviours that we expect all of our staff to to really show every single day um, based on the values. And I'm really pleased, you know, our staff do. We have, we have, a, we have a brilliant team of staff, but we also want to be clear as an organisation about what the expectations are in working in service of children and families. And that I think helps the culture continue when new people start so that it's really clear for them um, what the culture ought to be. I mean, one of the interesting things that we have is that a lot of our staff who come and work for us clinically are staff who um, have come from the NHS. And that is a different culture to the culture that we have within a children's hospice. So we have to help some of those staff to to rediscover um, the culture. And I absolutely agree. If the culture isn't right, we no organisation is able to deliver its strategy. Yeah, and I I love that. I love that behaviours framework. I think that's really powerful and one that would almost encourage staff to come knowing that you have a behaviours framework because so often it's so difficult to to explain why somebody just doesn't fit into a role but you need to know what behaviours are okay and what behaviours are not okay and I think there is the need for us to just be really clear on that as organisations and what's okay here and what's not. You know, absolutely. Uh, no, I really agree with that. I mean, clarity is really important. I would say the next bit is is holding people to account. So part of my job as chief executive is to be held to account by our staff, but also to hold others to account. And on those very rare occasions where perhaps values aren't being demonstrated, to be really clear with people about why it is that something has to be different and um, and, and the ability to hold courageous conversations with people and say, I'd like to talk to you about this. I noticed that you did this. I'd like to have a conversation about it. It's it's hard to do, 
but we have to do it. And my role as the chief exec is to support people across the organisation at every level to do that. And that's people having courageous conversations up, down, around. It's not yeah. a, a top-down thing. Yeah, and I think when you reflect on the work you do, when you talk about courageous conversations, my goodness, your service users are having a lot of very courageous conversations within a clinical setting, aren't they? And very difficult conversations. So that must inspire people to think, well, if they can actually cope with that... I can have a courageous conversation with my colleagues. Absolutely. And, and it comes back to what you said right up front, that, that you know, when it comes to death and dying, we are not good as a country about talking yeah. about death and dying. And and so that is a really hard topic to have a conversation about. Um, but we do do that in hospices mm-hmm. and um, up and down the country. Um, people who work in palliative care talk about death and dying, but, but those who don't rarely do, and it's seen as a taboo, and uh-huh. um, it is utterly inevitable. So uh, why don't we talk about it? It's a really good question. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so I know that we, as I mentioned at the start, we met at the Chartered Institute of Fundraising event a few weeks ago at the awards dinner, which was wonderful, obviously, as we got to celebrate all the great fundraising achievements that go on in the sector in Scotland. And so when we were chatting that night, we talked about how the chief exec can support fundraising because I've been a fundraiser, not so much a fundraiser anymore, but have been in the charity sector for over 25 years. 20 years I was completely a fundraiser. And... It doesn't always feel like the most supportive environment, depending on the organisation that you're in. It can sometimes feel like the fundraisers are, I don't know, we're probably a bit louder and we do a lot more wacky things than any colleagues in any organisation we could possibly ever work in. So you were talking about how you're so committed to supporting that fundraising culture and that fundraising piece within the organisation. So do you want to tell us a wee bit about how you do that and why you prioritise it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can't do anything that I want to do in the organisation without fundraising mm-hmm. happening. Um, so when I first joined Chaz, I hadn't worked, uh, you know, in a fundraising role before or in a fundraising organisation. And um, I guess I thought it was something that happened over there. And then I realised really quickly, within a couple of weeks, no, this was my role, working alongside my fundraising director to really um, be of service to those staff who are raising the funds that allow us to deliver our charitable objectives. And um, it is different. Mm-hmm. You know, fundraising staff work in a different way. They work in different on different things, weird, wacky, fun, loud and colourful. Um, but it, it, it is absolutely essential. So it was a big learning curve for me to learn how to work with income generation in, in that way. Um, and I guess, I, you know, I have a, a background in, in comms some time ago and that helped, I think, because yeah. there's some similarities there. So I was really able to understand the need to own our message, to get our message out and to inspire action as a result of that um, and so I, I love working with our fundraising team they're absolutely great and I recognize that Emma's being the experts and raising funds but I'm here to help in the way that I can and that is about I think for a chief executive giving real organizational vision and clarity so that fundraisers know what it is they're raising money for and so our donors know what they're raising money for it's about giving fundraisers and um, resources time and space to to try new things and experiment with things all of us who deliver services are 
always say, oh, well, we need to test and develop and deliver new types of services. Yeah. Well, actually, we have to have the same openness to innovation and fundraising as in service delivery. And I think the other thing, a chief executive has a really important role is in thanking donors, being visible for those who support the organisation. So I really enjoy the opportunities that I get to meet people who choose to support Chaz and to, to be alongside um, our fundraising events. But yeah, it's um, it, it was definitely a learning curve for me. I mean, the other day I walked into my office and there was a, a, a large uh, 10-foot Barbie stand from um, the Barbie film that's going to be used for a fundraising event coming up. I had no idea why it was there, but uh, <laughs> I knew that I knew our fundraisers had something to do with it. Exactly, exactly. And I suppose it's such uh, an emotive charity, isn't it? I've worked in a wide variety of charities and some you could think are harder to fundraise than others because you have to find the right target audience and everything. As a fundraiser, I've I've never done any work for Chaz, obviously. I can imagine that who doesn't want to support a children's hospice organisation? And the, the support you get must be almost uh, very, very personal, isn't it? Because people, a lot of people, I'm sure, raise a lot of money for your organisation because they or their loved ones have had an experience in Rachel House, in Robin House, at home or in the hospital setting. And it has been the most pivotal moment of their lives undoubtedly and so I really love that correlation you're making about how you also let them know that you're spending their money well because I think that's sometimes where organisations can sometimes get it wrong that they accept money they say they need money but they don't tell the story very well so are you really tied into that two-way street of how you support families that have been through an awful time and this is part of their healing I suppose isn't it? Yes I mean I think in terms of healing, I mean, I think we are many families want to tell their story, but we are led by families on yeah. that, and we, we tread a very careful line. Uh, families often want to, people to know what life is like in a, a difficult and taboo part of the world, which is what happens when you are living with a child with a life shortening condition when they die. But not all families do, and so we, we have to be very careful to make sure mm. we get the ethics right yeah. on, on, on telling the story in that way. And you're right, and people really support children's hospices people support adult hospices but you know i think most people think the hospices are part of the nhs yeah. and they're not we have to we receive some money from the government but a, a minority of our money the vast majority of the funding we need to deliver our clinical services for children at end of life and in the the years leading up to children dying is raised from the voluntary donations of the generosity of the Scottish public. And I think that is the hardest thing for us. I don't think we need to um, convince people that a children's hospice is an important thing, but we do need to help people understand that it can only happen and exist because of their generosity. So so there is something about telling the story and helping people understand. And yeah, absolutely transparency about how we, we spend our, our money. So we publish really, really detailed annual report and accounts every year, you know, hundreds of pages setting out how we are, are, are delivering the work that we do. And we also have a, a really great impact report, which is just five or six pages long, but is tells the story in maybe slightly simpler ways about what difference people donating to this charity um, makes and um, they make a massive difference. Yeah. We, we could not do it without it. And one of the things I love about Chaz is you get really close, you get up close 
to families who are receiving support and, and hear it from them. I was talking to a mum just yesterday in one of our hospices who comes from quite a rural area and she was there for a respite stay with her, her son who's who's got very complex needs and has a um, life-shortening condition but is not is, is stable, is not an end of life. And she's there for um, a break and she was saying, this is the only time I get to sleep. This is the only time I get to sleep. And there is something really powerful about so powerful. hearing that from someone. Yeah, so powerful. And I think the, what you raise about people thinking it's part of the NHS, and I think that's something I can reflect on in some of the work I'm doing just now with smaller organisations who I think people, the public, think they are just part of the council perhaps because they're a smaller organisation and they're not good at telling the story of what it is they do you know so there's all that in it but is there more that you think the sector could do to ensure that the public know how important their support is to ensure that that Scotland is the place we want it to become in terms of how we treat those who are poorly or who are at end of life. You know, that it's we can't just expect it as part of our national insurance contribution, sadly. I mean, I think we do have to do more mm. in, in that front. And we have to do it by articulating really clearly what our vision is, where our money comes from and how much money we need to deliver the services that we want. And if we don't do that, um, you know, I, I think we're, 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 we're on a hiding to, to nothing as a sector. Um, I, you said a moment ago, you know, about um, how, how there's the support from families who have used Rachel and Robin House. And absolutely there is. Some families have done amazing, amazing fundraising, but we cannot deliver our services at the scale we want to with only the support of those people who've directly used our services. Yeah. We need to inspire people who um, have never been in a children's hospice and don't know much about them to to learn more and, and inspire them to, to give. And it is unusual that of all the parts of care in society, end-of-life care and hospice care is one that we choose to fund through charity. And it is unusual in many mm-hmm. respects but um, a really high quality and it allows um, really person-centred care to be delivered at, at the hardest of times. It does and I'm just reflecting on my memory award ceremony where we met a couple of weeks ago and we had Dare David from Scottish Charity Air Ambulance and we had the Chief Exec of MND Scotland as well. These are all things that arguably we could say the state should be providing, aren't aren't they? But it's not. And I think as a fundraiser, as someone who works in the sector, what I find difficult with just Joe Public can sometimes be, well, why why is the NHS not paying for that? Is the question that would be directed at me. I was like, well, I'm not in the workings of government in NHS, so I don't know why they're not paying for it. But in the meantime, it's still very needed. That's just what society is, and I don't think it's ever going to go back the way, isn't it? Not where society is going to pay for that in any way other than via a charitable organisation, isn't it? Not absolutely. The NHS doesn't have loads of money to no. to pass around at the moment. I absolutely know that. But one of the things we've done is work with York University with some um, uh, health economists okay. to try and help us understand what is the value of the work that we do from an economic perspective Mm. in relation to the money we receive from government. So we're able to show 
with independent studies that for every pound of government money Chaz receives, we generate £6.24 of public value in return. So that's reduced GP appointments, faster hospital discharges, pharmacy optimization, fewer prescriptions, and um, the, the, the value of the respite care that we provide for, for families. We are saving the money. So all the time we hear, um, oh, we need to talk about preventative spend. Well, local charities are the biggest form of preventative spend that the state can identify and it requires leadership and a degree of courage i think from the state to say you know what we're not going to do this we're going to ask a charity to work with us to do it the thing in that though is that we then have to make sure that that's sustainable so charities can bring things to the table but they're not um, a cheap resource um, you know it's not we can't do things on the cheap we have to deliver quality services and um, but often it can be cheaper than trying to have a service delivered by the state and often the quality can be better and the thing that i think is really powerful in this is that during covid what we heard from the families we support is that often we were the only organisation staying in touch with them. So mm-hmm. we were able to be really close to families. And it's not just Chaz, it's other voluntary sector organisations as well, really close to the people who are using their services. And that allows the relationship-based practice that is a, 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 you know, a, the, the, the holy grail to, to be developed and built up. Uh-huh. And I think that's so fascinating about what is the value of the work we do, because we know it holds value. And interesting that you're working with a university because how else can you do that? And it's quite often when I'm working with organisations, I'm saying to them, so how do we display our impact, especially small, medium organisations? And they're all so busy doing the work of the organisation that they've not always got the capacity to understand what their impact is. And even though the only way they're growing is by clearly illustrating what their impact is. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword, isn't it? What made you guys decide to go and seek out some academics to be able to measure that so that you could use that and and grow in the organisation? We wanted to have really robust data, and mm. you know, Chaz is a is a, a big organisation. We, we we spend about twenty two million pounds a year, so we wanted to be really um, clear that we were having impact and were able to demonstrate that. And we thought that yes, there is a lot of work we do around and can do and do do around demonstrating our own impact. But we wanted that independent verification, and we felt that we were of a sufficient um, size to be able to to merit that. And it has been really helpful because it helps to make the case for uh, a spine of statutory funding that we can grow our voluntary income off. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the challenge is making sure that that spine stays sustainable and, um, you know, like many charities in Scotland, we are facing significant cost increases um, during the last few years because of the, the strange and unusual um, economic times that we're in. Yeah. And so what's next on the horizon then for, for Chas, for you, for the team? Well, we're just coming to the end of our four-year strategic plan, which was um, delivered before COVID and sort of rapidly readjusted um, during the pandemic. Um, and we're beginning to, to launch it. So we've been doing some really innovative work. We've been working with about 70 of the children that we support and about 100 families that we support to really hear from them about what matters and what matters to them. And we're beginning to shape our strategic plan for the years ahead. And the, the big theme in that will be about partnership. Mm. 
how we and Chaz can work more in partnership with other charities to support the families we're here to support and how we can work more in partnership with the NHS and local authorities because at a time of reducing resources, partnership working is what delivers effective outcomes for, for children and families. Um, it's really hard though, it takes time to, mm. to develop partnerships and work up and, and deliver projects jointly, but um, where we do it, it's absolutely the case. We're also having a look at our hospice um, estates at the moment. We're going to need to uh, invest in our hospices. Rachel House was built almost 30 years ago, so wow. it's needing a bit of uh, TLC in, in terms of, of the, the fabric of the building. But we also want to take the opportunity to make sure we're designing in for the next 30 years. So the moment where we're, we're looking out there and saying, what will the children's hospice be like in 2056? And what do we need to do now to, to begin to design for it? And it's a real challenge because um, medicine is moving so fast at the moment that, that there are many conditions that today children are diagnosed with and they live for much longer than they might have in the past so we're going to have to make sure and design our services to to be around for those children over a longer period of time than than in the past so yeah it's, it's hugely exciting mm-hmm. but it's also i think an exciting time to be in the voluntary sector i, I think that there are i see an approach to uh, leadership within the voluntary sector which is about shared leadership across places and uh, communities so that is much more joint working with the statutory sector with public bodies and uh, local authorities government uh, and i think that's exciting because if we get those partnerships right i think scotland can deliver really incredible things yeah and just before we finished i wanted to touch on our dock house because i have been to our dock house a couple of times and i know that was gifted to Chaz and you continue to operate it I suppose probably as a social enterprise as such because profit all comes back to the charity now this is on the banks of Loch Lomond could possibly be one of the most stunning places I've ever stayed in my life so tell us a wee bit about how that came about because it's quite a unique offering that you guys got and how you're using it isn't it Oh, this is a once in a charity's lifetime yeah. gift. So, uh, 136 acres on the banks of Loch Lomond, um, 18 bedrooms, uh, wedding venue, conference centre, meeting space. But it, it is uh, 35 minutes from Glasgow, but it is the most tranquil place yeah. you could imagine. So, there is no better place in Scotland for team days, for meeting days. And you're right, we're running it as a profit with purpose venue. And we thought long and hard about this. We got a phone call one day. It was my predecessor as chief exec who got a phone call to say, Would you be interested? And we were a bit flummoxed. To be honest, yeah. you know what what was this all about? And we thought long and hard and did a lot of due diligence in this. But we thought, okay, we're a charity that runs secondhand clothes shops to mm-hmm. raise money. Why should we not run a conferencing centre to raise money for the charity? And and it is phenomenal. So if you are looking for a venue, private private function or um, a training day and away day overnight resident uh, re- residential non-residential there, there's really nowhere better than Ardoch. so you can you can google Ardoch Loch Lomond and and have a look but yeah it, it's a really special thing to have been gifted to Chaz and it's um uh, given me a whole new insight into a section that I didn't know well before in terms of hospitality but we've got a great small team at Ardoch who um who are, who are delivering what is a great great product so we've had a number of weddings there we also had um some i've had uh, some corporate retreats there that have been really useful and a number of um private events i think the thing that's most useful is that we're able to use it for 
for charities who you need to have that somewhere to go away for the board away day for a planning session for a training session and and it really is a special special place so yes yeah and i've been there pre-pandemic as just a day delegate going to something but I've also been there since the pandemic uh, staying overnight for um, a a sort of a team conference and it is absolutely stunning I can't imagine anywhere better and if you were planning a small wedding or something that would just be a stunning place as well so it's lovely to see that there are more ways than we can imagine to fundraise isn't there? Absolutely diversification is key and uh, if we don't diversify um, income streams risk drying up so yeah no I, I'm absolutely it's it's a real honour to be able to um, to 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 have Ardoch and to help it raise money for an incredible cause exactly thank you so much Rami for all the work that you and your colleagues are doing and for coming on the podcast I really appreciate it oh it's been great having a chat thank you so much for having me on thank you Rami Thank you for joining us on BTA Charity Voices podcast. If you would like to know more about the work of BTA or indeed access more of our knowledge and expertise, you can find all the info you need at our website, www.brucetateassociates.net. Here you can also sign up for our newsletter, vacancy alerts and webinars for professionals within the charity sector.